Hi listeners, welcome back to another episode of Rock the Boat. This is actually going to be the last episode of season four. After this episode, we'll be taking a break until season five, which is starting late September this year. In season five, Rock the Boat is focusing on spreading the word about getting out the vote for the AAPI community. So we're partnering with organizations and podcasts like the Model Majority Podcast, BRAAPI, to bring you guests who have held government office or who've participated in public policy. The goal of season five is to really help everybody create dialogue around civic engagement and also get out the message of how important it is for us all to vote. So if you have any wonderful guests in mind for season five, please reach out. All right. On with the show. I really wanted a design partner who could be like the face of the brand, who consumers are connecting with on a personal level, being like, that person, that person thought of this bag. It's not like a faceless company where it's just, you don't know who it is. I, I also come from a generation of brands where Michael Kors and Coach and like the leadership were men. The majority of products are being sold to women. Mm-hmm. And the majority of people who work there are women. But why is all of leadership men? Why is the person associated with the brand a man? So there was a lot of incongruency for me, and I wanted to create a team where we reflected who we were and who we were making this for. You're listening to Rock the Boat, a show about Asian Americans who challenge the status quo. Our past guests have included Andrew Yang, Michelle Fawn, Patrick Lee, and more. Our mission is to champion diversity in radio and elevate the voices of Asian Americans through storytelling. I'm your host, Lucia Liu. If you take a look around your house, how many digitally native brands do you see? Do you use Harry's, Glossier, Orby Parker, Third Love? Looking around our house, we have Brooklyn and Sheets, and we were really close to getting a Lisa mattress. These brands seem to be everywhere today. The first time I heard of functional and sophisticated digitally native bag brand Dagny Dover was at my friend's house. She had just bought a backpack from Dagny Dover, and she mentioned that the founders went to Wharton. Then afterwards, I started seeing Dagny Dover everywhere. I saw them on Instagram. I saw them on the subway. I saw people carrying their bags. I saw ads of their bags on websites. Needless to say, I was intrigued. So when I got the chance to meet Melissa Mash, the mastermind behind Dagny Dover, I asked her to share her startup story on Rock the Boat. I actually met Melissa through Gold House, so shout out to Gold House, and shout out to Miko, who runs Gold Rush. If you haven't heard of Gold Rush, Gold Rush is a 12-week accelerator with the purpose to partner and scale Asian-led businesses across the United States. They have a cohort each season, so if you lead a Asian-run business or if you just want to help support Asian-Americans who have really cool products, go check them out. All right, here's Melissa. My name is Melissa Mash. I'm co-founder and CEO of Dagny Dover. We are a performance-based accessories brand. Amazing. Before Dagny Dover, were there any products or brands that you highly liked or admired? Yeah. I'm a product of that era of digitally native brands popping up in 2008, 2009. Those were the things that were inspiring me. Warby, of course, Birchbox, but just anything that was a high quality product at a sharper price point where I was able to speak directly to a brand. I wasn't necessarily discovering it through a third party where maybe the story gets diluted a little bit or the product features might not be displayed, etc. Something where you can connect a lot mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. closely with the brand. That's yeah. what I was attracted to. Can you name all of the direct-to-consumer brands in your life that oh you've used? Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Okay, let's see. Let's call them digitally native. Okay. Because, like, for example, I, I'm obsessed with my avocado mattress. And it is made out of wool and cotton. And it's, like, super pure. But, like, they have showrooms because you need to try out a mattress before you feel really confident. Oh, 100%. About buying a premium product. And so, like, I'm obsessed with that. What else? Let's see. What am I wearing? Yes, the third love bras. So let's go back to simpler times. I'd love to talk more about your upbringing mm-hmm. and what was little Melissa like. <laughs> <laughs> little Melissa was a little, as they used to call me Missy, was was very mischievous. And like, I think my parents were worn down uh, because so my sister's eight and a half years older than me. And she was a little bit wild. And so 
And she was just like a hard kid, not because it was, it was just like she yeah. had colic and she, she yeah. wouldn't eat well and she, all of that. Uh, so they were just sort of like worn down by parenthood and the immigrant experience. Yeah. So when where, I came along. Where are they from? They're from Korea. And they came here, worked for a few years and then had my sister and then waited eight and a half years to have me. Oh, wow. And so I think that they just sort of like were like, whatever, for the second one, you know? <laughs> yeah. And um, where'd you grow up? Cleveland. Outside, Ohio. Outside Cleveland, yes. That was the first state I lived in. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. My parents were very, they, they wanted us to be what we wanted to be professionally because they, my mom was a pharmacist and my dad was a financial advisor and they did jobs that... Yeah, made sense for, for us to have a middle class or upper middle class life. Mm-hmm. And my sister showed very early on at the age of eight that she wanted to be a writer. And that's mm-hmm. actually what she is today. Oh, wow. So when a kid shows that sort of passion, they were like, okay, we, we understand that we're not going to get a doctor out of this one. We're not going to get an engineer, a lawyer. We're not going to get anything that all of our friends' children are going to be. Yeah. And we're going to accept that. She broke them early. Oh. <laughs> so you have your sister to thank. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so she got into every school, as you as you, as you you do sometimes when you have these parents, right? Got into every school she applied to. She ended up going to Stanford when she rejected Harvard and then ultimately ended up going to Stanford instead. And then she wanted to be a writer and all of that. And my parents were like, okay, all right. She keeps testing us at every step. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, when your kid goes to Stanford, you're like, okay, all right, we did our job. Like, that's fine. <laughs> we did, like, we've, done, we've done our job. <laughs> but then she decided to teach in, uh, English in Indonesia the, fo- the following year. Wow. Yeah. So that was another like, okay, all right, we're just going to go for this. That's incredible. Uh, what were you interested in? Yeah. So I, I was really into like Broadway. I wanted to be a performer. I went to lots of performing arts camps. I, did you, do you sing? I do. Do you, I, want to, do you want to sing something? What, what do you want me to sing? I can sing anything. But. <laughs> What's your favorite show? Maybe Rent. Obviously, Hamilton's amazing. Yeah, I'd say those two. Yeah, those what's two your favorite really... song in Rent? <laughs> yeah, so I sang for a long time. I started with singing lessons, Italian opera in particular, in seventh grade, and then piano from kindergarten on through 12th grade. I played French horn, I did violin, but really was singing in piano. Wow, that's a lot of instruments. It's a lot of instruments because the French horn and violin I was not very good at. And well, didn't like, really French like, horn so. and violin are so different. It's They're like if you different. went from yeah. violin to cello, that's understandable. But yeah. like, <laughs> it was just trying new things and being like, yeah, I'm not into that. Like, but singing I've always been really into. So I would just like, again, my parents just sort of let things happen. Yeah. So I would just like sing around the house and just be myself. So I was always into that. So performing arts for sure. And uh-huh. then I got to NYU and I knew I didn't want to continue a career in music. I just wanted to mm. enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And was I there was a really, reason? I didn't want to be poor. <laughs> I didn't want to struggle. I knew that the, it was so hard yeah. and I wasn't yeah. that talented. Was that your idea from your parents or was that an idea? That, that was on my own. I, on I've own. always wanted things. Mm. My sister always jokes because and she's eight and a half years older than me and in sixth grade I came home with a keyboard one day and my mom and my sister like where did you get that from? I was like I bought it and they're like from whom? I was like my classmate. They're like where'd you get the money from? I was like I saved it. And my sister like literally had never thought of the concept of saving money in her whole life and she's like my sixth grade sister saved money and bought this keyboard yeah I mean you were 12 at that time right yeah Um, but like I wanted things and whenever I wanted things I was like totally willing to work for them but like I wanted them interesting I knew that like first of all I wasn't that talented in music to like be professional Mm -hmm. and it would be a really long journey to get there and I also wanted to have a family and didn't want to have a crazy schedule you know that's very self-aware of you I mean I was like 18 19 at the time and I was like yeah, I have other interests too. I have many other things I would like to do with my life. I thought I was interested on the business side of fashion, but I wasn't in a business undergrad. I was in the College of Arts and Science. I was majoring in Metropolitan Studies, which I very much enjoyed, but it's really like a social science. It's not really directly applicable to anything I did with my career, Sure. but it helps you understand how things work. Growing up in Cleveland, were there a lot of Asians? Not a lot. Okay. Like obviously not nothing like the coasts, but where I'm from, NASA, it has like a place nearby so like some engineers would be from there it has like Cleveland Clinic and University Hospital Systems etc so lots of doctors right so it's so there was like a community mm-hmm. it, it wasn't completely like there's mm-hmm. no one was there ever an instance where you were like things are a little different here did you always feel like oh, I belonged here I felt like if anything when I got to NYU I sort of felt like oh I'm different oh how so because there were a lot of Asian people but they were not like me because they had grown up with other Asian people and they tended to like stay with other Asian people. And that was like, so not, I have like friends 
who are everything. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's race really is not a factor at all mm -hmm. in why we bond. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, I do have Korean American friends, I have Asian friends, and like we understand our commonalities, but that's not the core of it. So I was like, I remember like the Asian sorority like really wanted me to join, and they were like kind of mean about it. They were like, "You're either with us or you're not." I'm like, "I'm not. I'm. I know. I don't want to be. I'm. I'm not one of those people who's like exclusive." Yeah. And anyway, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was like culture shock to me because I had never encountered people like encountered that like large groups of people like me who expected me to be with them too. So my mom, she was educated by American missionaries, she and her sisters, oh, uh -huh. and actually my mom's mom also spoke English and was educated by American missionaries too. So they were oh, very I Western uh -huh. in just how they were brought up. So my parents never taught us Korean. That's very surprising because I always feel like Korean Americans hold their cultures better. Coming from a Chinese American perspective, there are a lot of Chinese Americans who, who don't speak Chinese. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. So even like growing up in Cleveland, like we were the only people who my parents never taught us Korean or taught us customs. They were like, you don't need to bow to this person. Like, I'm like, I think I feel like I'm being rude if I'm not bowing. Everyone yeah. else is bowing. Why yeah. aren't you teaching me how to bow? But she was like, we were just so busy trying to assimilate that like we just didn't want to confuse you. And we wanted to make sure that you like knew English really well. So like when I got to NYU, for example, like literally no one was like me in that they all knew how to speak Korean. And I was like, how am I literally the only person whose parents didn't? Yeah. So, you know, there's just like a lot of like, whoa, I'm different. Yeah. Was your interest in fashion stemmed from Broadway at all? No, I yeah. just was always into fashion. In high school, Cleveland doesn't have very, at the time, certainly didn't have very many stores. So my friend and I would drive two hours to Columbus and go shopping there, which had slightly better stores, or I'd like order from the Delia's catalog, right? Or like something like that, because we just didn't have things. This yeah. was obviously yeah. pre-internet. Yeah. I was really into bags. And whenever I'd come and visit my sister in New York, who lived in New York in her 20s, I would like, of course, like buy all, everything here, <laughs> but always on a high schooler's budget or middle schooler's budget. So in high school, I, I like made my first bag that was like kind of modeled after like a Kate Spade boxy silhouette. And when you say made, like, did you actually like sew it? Yes, I, I sewed it. Wow. I mean, like with my hands because yeah. I, I didn't know how to use a sewing machine. That's painful. It didn't look good at all. <laughs> this was like, this was just like my first <laughs> attempt using cardboard, velvet, and beads. And, and I made my first bag and... I always wanted things. I always wanted things that ne didn't necessarily exist, but I was like, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to stay home on a Friday night and yeah. see see what comes of this. So yeah. anyway, I was always into bags, and then I decided, okay, I'm going to go for some internships, being in New York for undergrad, and I started working for some smaller designers, started working for the buying office at ABC Carpet and Home, worked for a small jewelry designer and did trunk shows for her at Henry Bendel, worked for, what else, a, a bedding and clothing designer and did trade shows for her. And then I really wanted to work for a bigger company where I could learn like processes and work with more than just like one other person mm -hmm. and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I found out about that coach had an internship program, applied and met with people and eventually got my first internship there. Yeah. How did that feel? Oh my gosh, it felt surreal. I mean, like as a, how old was I at the time? 20 year old or 21 year old? Getting to work at a big company that at the time was, I mean, it was like one of the top two stocks like on Wall Street. Yeah. People were just talking about how, how amazing the business was. What was that? 2005, early mm -hmm. 2005. And getting to be part of this big machine and getting to learn from people who were so talented when, who am I? I'm 20. 21. It was super cool. It was yeah. really awesome. I learned a lot from there. And then I eventually started my career there after I graduated. So like after you graduated and you worked at Coach, what were some of like the opportunities that you got that felt like they propelled you to where you are today? Oh my goodness. So I, I just asked for things and they heard me and they responded. So like, for example, as an intern, I said, hey, this is really great that I get to work on this like one thing, which was basically our wholesale channels and managing those brick and mortar wholesale accounts. I said, this is cool, but I like don't even know what other people in my division do in wholesale. And I don't know what other parts of the company do for this whole thing to work. Can I meet with other people in other divisions? And they're like, hmm, we've never had an intern ask that. And so they set up you know, meetings for me so that I could do that, which was really great. They're really supportive. And That's then, amazing that you actually were proactive about it because a, yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people don't right a lot of people except kind of what's think, given to them except yeah. this is like this is the process but like yep. 
you, you gotta but you understand. don't sound like the gotta, type of person who would follow. No, you just kind of have to like question, like, hey, how? Mm-hmm. What is my impact in this greater organization? Mm-hmm. So that happened. And then, of course, I was building, you know, a, re- a relationship with HR as well by asking these types of things and just having questions. Yeah. And then. I'm going to be a senior at NYU. I, I can create a schedule in which I can work two days during the week. Can I stay on during the, during the school year? And they got approval. And yes, so I was able to do that, which was awesome because I, I don't know if they had any other interns who were able to do that, which is great. How did you make that work? Like, how did you balance your Oh, school studies? was not very important to me. <laughs> Basically, I just okay. made sure that my schedule was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in school. I mean, school was always interesting to me, but it was never my first priority in what I was doing. Going to NYU, it was like literally 30% of my day. Mm-hmm. I would go to my classes, I would get my work done. I wasn't like a slacker by any means, but I was not gunning to be like top 5%. Mm-hmm. That was not me. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm gunning for a job. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> I'm not an academic. I want real experience. I want real experience. I'm someone who loves to do things, yeah, you know? And like, I, get, I get that energy. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's reading books can only get you so far and, and all of that. So I was able to be there and just be more with the team and understand how everything worked yeah and what was really nice was kind of close to graduation I think it was probably February or March of of that year so just a couple months before I was graduating my boss our DVP had told me he's like we're saving a spot for you to, to join our team we've hired like a temp person who can help this person but you would be reporting to this person it's like oh my gosh that's amazing that yeah. they're, like, they're like we think you're a great fit you've proven yourself etc yeah. they typically don't hire straight from undergrad but so it really was like a huge first step in my career where yeah. I was kind of advancing like two years mm. where they would normally be looking at someone who had account management experience at another retailer for like two years to mm-hmm. go into that role. Yeah. That was like the first like big step in my career is just like yeah. getting to that point. Yeah. And then I was managing, I was helping manage a bunch of accounts, Macy's and Bloomingdale's, et cetera, got promoted to, to manage more. And then basically there was an opportunity to start the wholesale e-commerce channel. Mm-hmm. And two people had been put on the team and they were really looking for this third person, but they were looking for someone who had five years experience in e-commerce. Now, five years in experience in e-commerce didn't really exist, exist. back then because it was 2008. Right. Beginning of 2008. And so I, I said, like, I want the job. And they were like, you're too junior and you don't speak up enough. And so, no. But Wait, that's kind of ironic because it sounds like you are doing everything except for not speaking up enough because you, you've been well, kind of asking know, a lot of questions totally and poking did. around. I was, yeah. I was, but I wasn't not necessarily in front of management, right? Like this was not a place mm -hmm. where I was like chiming in in conversations where I was by far the least experienced person in the room. Like I was speaking HR and I was like asking my manager, but like I was never visibly speaking up in front of large groups of people because frankly, I I didn't feel that was the culture, but also I I wasn't doing that, right? Right. So got it. And were you given, you weren't given opportunities to do it either, were you? It's hard to say, but the point is once they gave me that feedback, I was like, okay, if that's what I got to do, I'm going to work on that. Mm. So, you know, it's really intimidating when you're, however, I was 23 at the time. Yeah. And being in a room where people are 20 years older than you and obviously have been doing this for like, literally, there are yeah. like so many like life. Sometimes you're like, who am I to be able to give 100%. a recommendation why, on this? Why would I ever take up anyone's hearing to like contribute my, so that was very much how I felt. And so then when they gave me that feedback, I was like, okay, I can speak up more. I can show that I'm thinking of these things critically. And I think it was after like three or four months, they noticed and they said, yes, we would love to promote you to, you know, help manage the wholesale e-commerce channel. So that was a really amazing experience because I wanted to learn more about this emerging customer who was shopping online, who had very different types of tastes, willingness to pay, et cetera. And it's exciting. It's something that was unpredictable and something mm-hmm. that was a Did puzzle. you shop online at that time? 2008. I don't know. I don't know if there were really places to, to shop online. I mean, I think it was just starting. Yeah. So I don't really know. Yeah. So then for you, it sounds like it was a very exciting opportunity. It was something new. You got oh, to yeah. explore something that was very unique. And it felt like a, a big growth opportunity for you. And Huge so that's growth why opportunity. Your yeah. And I ended up being the youngest senior account associate that they had ever had and all of that. And mm-hmm. then at the end of that year, the recession was starting and like people were getting really nervous about the economy. It was the end of 2008. My now husband, but at the time boyfriend, had just gotten a job offer in London. And I was like... We're totally going. And he's like, what do you mean we? We've been dating for like seven months. I'm like, we're going. How else am I ever going to get to work abroad? And he's like, okay, all right, we're going. Because he wasn't going to go. He didn't He didn't want to leave. Oh. Yeah, his two brothers had just had kids and like he wanted to be there you know, yeah. for them. And, and like, you were okay to let go of your job? Oh, yeah. Because I, I had been there a year at that point. Uh-huh. It was the end of 2008. Uh-huh. I learned a lot. Uh-huh. Frankly, we weren't going to get bonuses probably. So it's like, 
okay, so I'm not even going to learn anything else. I'm not going to get compensated as well. Mm -hmm. I have a value to my time, and I want to develop myself in new ways that I haven't been able to yet. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I was, what, 24. I quit my job, moved with my boyfriend at the time, and... Looked for That's a job very in London. bold of you, because <laughs> yeah, because you're you're leaving a very stable job. And for then sure, you're going I mean, like to, many uh, people told me I was making the wrong decision because yeah. they were like, "You're not going to be able to get a job." And trust me, like it was really hard yeah. looking for a job. Yeah, I struggled for. I mean, like being a foreigner in the UK and tr- trying to get a job when everyone's cutting jobs. There are no jobs. So then, yeah. coach called me up and they were like, "Actually, we have something for you." So yeah. they really helped develop. Oh you. yeah. I'm coach born and bred. They call me up like many months after (laughs) I already moved. (laughs) They call me like three months. They were like, actually, we have something that's perfect. And I think it was also because like I didn't mean to cultivate, I didn't like really try to cultivate this relationship with HR, but I just had as an intern and they just knew who I was, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. and so after I left and I just kept in touch, they thought of me and they're like, Melissa's already there. We need someone from corporate who can go and fix everything at our first store. I think this would be great. So I was hired by Coach's UK distributor at the time. And I was sort of the liaison between Coach the brand and them. And I was managing the store, managing the people, managing everything that mm-hmm. goes along with it, mm-hmm. visual merchandising, operations, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it was really what started Dagny. It's that time in the store at Terminal 5 at Heathrow where I was speaking to customers and <laughs> explaining what made our product different and people were giving their feedback that was like, hmm, there's yeah. a lot of opportunity for a new brand here because yeah. people aren't that into anything in the terminal. Yeah. They're not that into cores. They're not into Tumi, yeah. et cetera. Like they want something that's new, millennial, that's performance-based, that it has a sharper price point. Uh-huh. Of course, has to have the functionality. Uh-huh. It's got to store your tech. There's definitely opportunity for for a brand like this. Yeah, and and how did you feel working out at Heathrow every day? It was hilarious. <laughs> okay, like people like Americans who who live in London. Yeah, they are not working at Heathrow. Okay? Right, exactly. That's that that that's why. <laughs> like, so when I would like meet other expats because that's who who we knew, they'd be like, "What?" I was like, "Yes, I do the reverse commute. I I go from." central London into Heathrow every day I go through security it was funny but it was also really I mean as it always is whenever you're in a new environment interacting with new people etc it was really interesting what kind of like cultural differences did you experience in London if at all so I thought that London would be like New York and it's not New York has like amazing service yeah and then you get to London you're like oh that's not a value here okay cool <laughs> and like oh if people think people think I'm Chinese because everyone in London's Chinese uh, but like I'm not I think Americans are known for being like very warm and casual and like that's obviously which is ironic because coming from New York that's the least right, people right. think about but for, compared yeah. to London it's like yeah. people have their own groups yes. and they keep to themselves and also like we're, we're known to be like very loud there mm-hmm. so you just feel always like a little over the top <laughs> compared to everyone else. Americans are very loud. I guess we are. And so while you were in London and you were working in the Heathrow store, did you conceive of Dagny Dover at that point? In case you don't know, Terminal 5 at Heathrow is super posh. It's the British Airways exclusive terminal. So nowadays it's even more posh. There was Dior, there was Prada, there was Gucci. And in addition to those longstanding European brands, of course, Coors was everywhere, Longchamp was everywhere as well, and the whole gamut of what you see in the US. And people just didn't want that. They wanted something new, and they wanted something that wasn't so expensive and all of that. So it was a matter of timing, too. It was 2009, Morby and Bobble Bar and Bonobos. And I saw that, like, hey, if you chat directly with your customers and if you're able to target them digitally, et cetera, build a relationship with them. Yeah, you don't need the expensive capex that I was managing all that time when I was at Coach, looking at those wholesale partners and the real estate that they take up, mm. looking at the you know freestanding retail stores that are losing money. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do this like the scrappy way, the new age way, mm-hmm. where it's like connect with people directly, speak with them, get their feedback, because that's where we go wrong is when we use push marketing. This is sexy. This is cool. You should buy it. That doesn't get you that far, or that only will get you through a few years of good business. But that's not what people want. People want to feel understood. They want to feel heard. They want to feel that you're taking their feedback and you're incorporating it. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what we've done since day one in the business. My co-founders and I always listening to what people were saying before we design a single thing or put a single thing out there in market. Yeah, that's amazing. Question for you. At the point when you were working at Coach, like you were working, you worked at Coach for how many years? So I was there starting as an intern in 2005, and then I left corporate at the end of 2008, and then I was in London with them in 2009. So like a good four years, four years-ish. So the four years that you were at Coach, like how many Coach bags did you So many bags. So many bags. (laughs) I haven't like bought like 
a bag since probably like any type of bag since probably 2004 because like <laughs> which is so coach, funny because and they you all love the coach bags, bags and yeah. they're like for my own bags yeah. so it's like just been like yes. <laughs> so now you just like have all the bags that oh you yeah need. oh yeah so many bags <laughs> yeah you just my child has bags like we bags everywhere <laughs> yeah. yeah well diaper bags are really big these days right yeah like, but he has his own bags too <laughs> That's home backpack. Yeah. That is funny. That's hilarious. So kind of going back into you conceived of the idea for Dagging Dover. At what point like, did you go back to business school? Yeah. So business school was totally a fluke. As I mentioned, like, I'm not like super into school. Like I always like did it because like it's important to mm-hmm. be educated. But also I never looked to go to get a, a higher education degree for just the sake of having one. So it was when we were in London that I had this idea. And my now husband, then boyfriend said, don't be like me and not think about business school until you're like not the ideal age range where they're going to want you like think about it 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 could really do amazing things for you because you didn't you know go to a business undergrad and you want to be an entrepreneur I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur too I forgot to mention that yeah hold on backtrack there's so so many things to talk about yeah I'm like you first said you wanted to I I was really no no but I mean as a kid there are many things you want to be I also want to be a social worker I also want to be a real estate agent right but it was like Broadway and then entrepreneur but that's like you got that could mean anything yeah well so when when you said entrepreneur like when was that when you were like oh I want to own my own business oh very early on mm-hmm. and that was for a couple reasons one I was always like trying to make money I was I wanted things so I was always just like finding crap and trying to sell it or like making bracelets and trying to sell it but also I had an aunt and uncle who were very successful entrepreneurs and it was like they had like medical laboratory like mm. type of thing and random Ohio like Lima yeah, Ohio yeah and they were like total American dream story and they were the ones who brought our my parents over and all of that and that's yeah. why we ended up in Ohio etc so yeah. they were just a big part of my lives and the fact that they were able to just see an opportunity they were working in school and college at the time at mm-hmm. Ohio Northern and were working at this medical laboratory and then they saw an opportunity to you know improve processes and yeah. saved up money and bought their first lab and then they bought yeah. one after another yeah. so growing up with that story and seeing my parents again they worked fine jobs but they weren't passionate about them they didn't have it wasn't theirs it wasn't larger than them they just went and did their whatever nine to five mm-hmm. so the cool cool thing of like having a business is that it's so much larger than what you're doing on a daily basis it's a lot of responsibility especially when you start having employees like that's yes, the it hardest is. part yes yeah. it is yeah because then now you're responsible for other people's livelihoods absolutely yeah yeah. And day-to-day happiness. <laughs> <laughs> so much pressure. <laughs> but I guess, like, did you ever decide to go to a business school for undergrad since you were no, really no, passionate no. about it? I was no. so not of that mind. I wouldn't have wanted that at no. all. I really wanted a liberal arts background. I mean, I love writing. Like, this is going to sound, I was going to say critical thinking, but I didn't mean that, like, you wouldn't get that. It's just more that, like, I'm not that analytical. Yeah, I went and got an MBA. I'm not the analytical one. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, I'm like t- the total anomaly MBA. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would, I, that, that's surprising to me because uh, you were running operations at the Heathrow. Yeah, but that's different. Mm. That, that's like, you're not, very much like, that's you, a it, doing thing. That's true. That's true. That's it sounds like a, your, your background has been a lot of like people relations, like client management, right. working with customers, right. talking to them. Right. And given that it was 2008, given that my contract with the coach distributor was only supposed to be six months anyway, ended up getting longer but there was a finite amount of time for it and given that I had this idea I was like shoot I need to go next year so I had like two months to prep and take the GMAT I did well enough and then we moved home and then I wrote my applications and luckily got in wow yeah so it was really quick wow it was it was was highly stressful (laughs) it was highly stressful that's it sounds like it did you write your applications based on your idea Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wrote about, did I, I wrote, actually, uh, I actually wrote about a different business idea. So I had two business ideas at the time, but this one was like the the better one. But the other one tied nicely into the work of a a Wharton professor who wrote a book called Scroogeonomics. I want to hear this. (laughs) Okay. So I had another business idea. It was called Love and Covet. And it was the idea of it being Imagine a universal registry that's highly visual online mm-hmm. where you're f- and it's tapped into your social network, whether it's like through Facebook or whatever, people can see what you want. Mm. They can see you love this candle, you want this set of pot and pans, whatever it is. And basically, if you've allowed them to see your contact information, they can just gift you things. And so what had happened was that one of my good childhood friends had visited us in London, but I hadn't seen her. Like We're, we're not that close, basically, but she had stayed with us in London. And after she stayed with us, she said, hey, what's your address? I want to send you a present. And I didn't want to give her our address because I didn't need a present. Like, she should just stay with us and all of that. So I just never sent it to her. But 
As a result, a chance for commerce and for me to be surprised and delighted was lost. Mm. And I think it was like $3 trillion or something was lost in bad gift giving or unused gift cards a wow. year, et cetera. Oh, well, yes, we have one from ABC Carpet that we haven't used. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <From our wedding. laughs> exactly. And and this professor who was at Wharton at the time, Joel uh, Waldfogel, I think was his name, he had written a book called Scroogeonomics about the inefficient gift giving and, and all the money lost and all of the happiness lost as a result. And so I was just like, this can be better streamlined. If everyone knew what people wanted and if you allowed people to see what your address was to send you this stuff and you could be surprised and delighted mm. and it would just create a lot more happiness and yeah. commerce, easy ways to make money. So and, anyway, so that was what my essay was about and that is what I actually entered business school thinking about that business and then I started to work on it. I was like, I am not a technical person. This is a highly technical product. I am not the right, right person for this. Exactly. Going back to the bags. The bags is where I'm at. Because <laughs> so. you're like, I stitched one together by myself. It's easy. I've <laughs> well, worked with bags all my it life. Was, it was more about like some people like I talk a lot in front of students and aspiring entrepreneurs and stuff and they're always like, well, I don't have the great idea. And I'm like, it's not about the idea. Yes. There's so many good ideas. It's about the timing, it's about the idea, it's about are you the right person to execute the idea slash can you build the right team to execute the, the idea, et cetera. Yes. It's so many things beyond just the idea. The idea is nothing. It truly yeah. is nothing. It's really nothing. It's just like, the it could be the beginning of something, yes. but that's it. That's exactly, it. exactly, exactly. Thank you for bringing that up because there's so many people who always say, oh, I thought of the idea for like Netflix or, oh, I thought right. of the idea for, you know, Amazon. Yeah. But then it's like, you ain't no Jeff Bezos. Okay. <laughs> All right. Like you didn't max out your credit cards. You, didn't, you know, you didn't. Do so uh, you started working on Dagny Dover in Wharton. It, it sounded like on all of the other news outlets that you've recruited your co-founders to work yes. on the idea. Yeah. Can you tell me the process of like yeah. finding your co-founders? So I, I was working on the business by myself for a year. And during that time, I was looking for my co-founders because I knew I definitely did not want to be a solo founder. That life sounds so hard <laughs> and sad. You're looking at it right now. <laughs> it's really hard. It it's very, really, very really difficult. hard. And, and frankly, it's like true. you have to like know your strengths and be like, hey, I'm not a designer like <laughs> I'm sorry if this is discouraging but like hey let's be a little self-aware here and be like here's where I shine and these are the areas where I can find someone to do it way better yeah I, and I think that it's from my MBA experience I was like I am not good at accounting I'm not going to try to do our accounting I'm going to hire an accountant that's smart like being just self-aware of like really where do you shine where where, where do you where is it better to bring in partners not to mm -hmm. say that you need to mm -hmm. bring in partners to fill a particular void but yeah, in yeah, my yeah. case I really wanted a more analytical business partner yep. I have a world of them coming from Wharton but it was really about finding the right mix of course it's not just about skill set at all yeah. and then I really wanted a design partner who could be like the face of the brand who people are connecting with who consumers are connecting with on a personal level being like that person that person thought of this bag it's not like a faceless faceless company where it's just you don't know who it is or it's you like know, a Chanel cases, versus a like. Yeah, or in some cases worse. Yeah. Of uh, but like I, I also come from a generation of brands where Michael Kors and Coach and like the leadership were men, selling most of the products, majority of products are being sold to women, mm -hmm. and the more, majority of people who work there are women. But why is all of leadership men? Why is the face of the face or the faceless or whatever the person associated with the brand a man? So there was a lot of incongruency for me. And I wanted to create a team where we reflected who we were and who we were making this for. At the time, two me existed for men, but there was no like functional design oriented, like smart design oriented interior bag company for women in particular. So mm -hmm. that's why we started with women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how did you how did you meet your co-founder? Yes. So Deepa and I have known each other for. 12 and a half years so she's my co-founder who's our COO and she was a year behind me at Wharton and so she was staying with me while she was interviewing because yeah and I was grilling her on her back being like why are you carrying a long jump you're better than that like what what, what message are you sending and she's like why is Mel asking me <laughs> about my it's a grocery bag there's nothing in there's no zippers don't there's even, like don't even get me started <laughs> but she she was like oh Mel's like really working on on this thing here and she came from retail she had worked at Club Monaco as a merchandise planner and in, in operations as well, merchandise planning and operations. And and so she saw the opportunity that I was pursuing and she was in one of my first focus groups. And basically all the women who came from retail who were in my focus groups were like, yes, this must exist. This has a ton of potential. And they wanted to work on my independent study. I was like, yes, let's get this group together of people who are excited to help me do the pricing analysis and the <laughs> everything, the branding and everything. We need as many bodies here as possible. And then I was also 
looking for a designer and I was working with freelancers at the time and looking for people in particular who had bag experience and I just wasn't that enthused by them and then I met Jesse and suddenly I was like oh she's incredibly talented she's far better than anyone who I've worked with so far and she's in this it was different about her? Well, first of all, her, her technical skills, oh. just in creating the tech packs, like they were so sophisticated. Like some other people were like hand drawing them. I was like, what the, what, you know, this is like 2012. You cannot be hand drawing tech packs. Even I know this and I'm not a designer. So she was just very skilled technically. And then on top of that, when I could explain, and I'm gonna like butcher this by like calling, it sounds like nails on chalkboard saying this, but I'm like, it needs to look like, kind of like reminiscent of a Celine, but it's gotta have like the commercial appeal of like a long shop or whether you're 15 or 60, you wanna carry it. But it also has, also has to be reminiscent of like a Louis Vuitton Neverfull because it's gonna be made out of coated canvas and needs to look luxurious. Can you make that happen? With, I love it. I love with it. With like these key features. And yeah. then she like made it look freaking amazing. It's like, oh my gosh, you you can take this like butchered, like horrible <laughs> description of what I'm going for. I actually for. think that's a very great description because you imagine you can exactly picture what what you're okay. describing, yeah, even right. though it's kind of like a Frankenbag. It's a Frankenbag. Right. But yeah. she like made it like, yes, this is elevated and this is exactly what I wanted but I could never yeah. ever put down on paper myself so that's hard that's yeah. really hard yeah. and not only that again beyond just skill sets but I really wanted I, we needed to work really well as a team mm -hmm. we needed to have grit mm -hmm. we needed to be not people who are just looking for the next best opportunity yep. this needs to be people who aren't looking to get rich quick this is not a get rich quick situation here this is a long slug out like the way that we're doing this is yeah. not going to be yeah easy yeah how did you guys come up with the name Dagny is a Nordic word for new day and we liked it because it's like we're, we're changing <laughs> we're changing what people expect out of their bags out of their products this is not like it's not good enough to have one pocket on the inside of your bag it was like 50 years ago that was acceptable that is not acceptable today we are carrying thousands of dollars worth of tech in our bag we are running to the gym to to work to picking up our kids so like we're doing everything this bag needs to perform for you so yeah. Dagny is is really meant to to stand out ah oh, I love that and then the I guess like the naming of the bag after Jessie is because she's the designer and yeah. she's the one who kind of conceptualized yep. it. We that's wanted very, it to be. That's very bold of you. Why is it not like Melissa? It's <laughs> like not the Melissa thing. Bag. I mean, right, like yeah. I think it may have been even my idea to do the Dover, and it's because we want people to connect with her as a designer mm -hmm. or as a person. It was really important. Again, like I come from a generation where that was not the case for us. Michael Kors, I do not connect with that. He's not like me. Or coach, what does coach mean? I, I wanted something where people could be like, I I'm connecting with that. Mm -hmm. And again, like it's not about ego. It's not about having your name on it. It's about what makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how did you convince the two of your co-founders to come on board? Was it like after you guys raised money or oh, like no. you guys were pitching? No, 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 like, yeah. Jesse was working at Brown Shoe Company at the time, basically being asked to like, rip off designer shoes and create them at a lower What a waste point. of her. That's, uh, yeah, and that's like a lot Amazing. of what fashion is. A, that's yeah. what a lot of fashion is. I know. So she, that was not inspiring for someone who is a as creator. As her, yeah. Exactly. That's not something, uh, you're coming out of school and those those are the realities. So that's that's pretty depressing. So, so yeah, I think she was very enticed by this opportunity and the fact that Deepa and I, we had a very good foundation at Wharton. If there was a, if there's any business people to like trust and like be like, hey, these people have worked in retail. Jesse's a little bit younger than us at the time. She had just started getting into the workforce. So we had like four or five years under our belts or actually more, four or five years working and then business school under our belts. Then she was like, okay, I'm gonna take the leap of faith. She would bartend at night and she would design during the day. Like, wow, life she's was multi-talented. Yes, like yeah. she was making it happen. Wow, she's bartender at night. This is like the grit you're talking about though. Like this yeah. is not people being like, how am I gonna make money? They're like, shit, I gotta make cash. So Deepa, again, we've known each other for like 12 and a half years, but at the time, she had, as she says, like, I, I also wanted to start a business except my ideas were like very unsexy. They were like SaaS based businesses, techie. And she's like, Mel's is a lot more fun. So <laughs> I think Deepa and I knew, I mean, we had never worked together before and like we weren't like super close as friends, but she was like, yeah, I think we complement each other really well. This is gonna be super fun. Let's just see what happens. And she was gonna see what happened during school. We got pretty far while she was in school because we launched in 2013, which is when she was graduating. Mm -hmm. And so we were far enough along that she's like, yeah, you yeah. know. So what was the launch like? Tell me, tell me the experience of like launching oh a brand and what was the traction like at the beginning? Ugh. Well, so at the beginning we 
surveyed and focus grouped a thousand women and men to figure out what the most important attributes of the bags were going to be. And then we backwards engineered from there. So given the fact that we had a thousand women and men already in our Rolodex, let's say, or in our base, whether they were friends of friends or whatever, four, four degrees removed, we hit them back up when we actually were ready to launch and said, hey, this is what it looks like. Thank you so much for your feedback. Comes in these two different silhouettes, a bag that is for like the work week and then a clutch wallet, which is for a day to night option. This is what it's priced at. These are the colors. Would you buy it? And immediately they did. And they sent it to their friends and suddenly suddenly we had a little bit of a groundswell, which is amazing because you never know if people are actually going to buy the product. Yeah. All the pricing and everything, they said everything matters, right? So so that was amazing. I think we did like $40,000 worth of sales in three months, which was pretty wow. good compared to what it could have been. So so we were like, okay, we can produce this. So it was a pre-sale. Yeah. People waited a long time. In some cases, I think maybe up to like four or five months to get a bag. Mm. But they were part of our beginning. Mm. Then from that, we were able to show investors like, hey, we have some traction. People like what we're putting out there and we just need more money to do it at scale. Yeah, yeah. I have a very, I guess, like direct question for you. I'm kind of curious about your thoughts going into entrepreneurship after business school. Mm -hmm. Business school is not cheap. Business school is not cheap. Yeah. So business school is not cheap. A lot of people who go into it wanting to do entrepreneurship end up coming out finding a job because they have to pay back their loans. I don't know if you took on any debt Mm -hmm. for business school, but then to also then launch a business that requires a lot of capital, especially on a product business where you actually need a lot of upfront capital in order to front the costs of production. Yeah. How were you able to handle all of that? Yeah. So first I'll start with the, how do we like fund the business at the beginning? So we were the first MBA company funded by First Round Capital's dorm room fund. So that was a $20,000 investment. We had also won the Wharton Venture Award, which is a $10,000 gift. So a lot of that early on helped pay for some of our early startup costs. We'd also started to take in some small checks from friends and family to help with that period. I think it was about 200K that we that we took in between us three founders, just hitting up everyone who we knew multiple times in order to, to get that in to, to just start the business. And then in terms of just like personally, I mean, we just try to cut out all of the expenses possible. Yes, I had loans and I used, I mean, all the savings, all the savings went to paying every single thing back as as much as I could. And then luckily I had my life partner at that point too. I went back to business school knowing my whole family that this was a thing I was doing. I was going to go there to be an entrepreneur. I was not going to be making income and that everyone chipped in. My parents put in $5,000 for our first website while I was still in business school. Like, yeah, I mean, like when things needed to happen someone helped make it happen. But we just cut out, like, my husband and I, we, like, didn't have, like, an actual apartment of our own for, like, nine months or something because we just, like, couch surf. We just, like, stayed at his parents or his brother's place outside Philly. Like, whatever was cheap and easy for us to do, we just did because we knew we, I was going to not have income for a long time. Wow. And he was very supportive of you, yeah. like, throughout the entire yeah. thing. I, mean, I think my this husband is why... would flip shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it's, like, all in. Yeah. We're investing in this being a whole new track for for. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. lot. And I'm very fortunate that like my parents didn't freak out and all of that because this was again, this came out of nowhere. I had never talked to no one ever thought I'd go back to school. I never thought like this was not part of the plan. But when an opportunity presents itself and then it's like my dream school, I I only really want to go to Wharton because of its focus on entrepreneurship and retail. It's like, okay, all right, we're gonna, we're all, we're we're doing this. Yeah. What are some of the, like the milestones that you guys went through? Were there moments where it was like, Someone on the street had it had a oh, yeah. bag, and oh, you were yeah. just like, "Hey, hey, I did that," but no one knows. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Every day now, yeah, lots of things. When we launched, it was like sort of like a fake it till you make it. Like we didn't even have our website; wasn't even like up on on like our and our launch party. Like everything was delayed. Like we had samples, but we didn't have like we, we weren't like selling in market or anything. And then let's see. So that was 2013. We raised our first round in 2014. 2015 is when we started to see it like once in a while on the street. And I remember, I don't think any of us can forget, but like my co-founders and I, we were in Midtown, we were all together and we saw a girl carrying one of our totes and we like flipped out and like accosted her and probably scared her tremendously. But that was just really exciting that we didn't know who she was and she was carrying our bag. And then in 2018, fast forwarding a little bit, but we had something called Dagny Summer Games, which was our five year birthday party basically that we opened up to the public and it was just an incredible 
I guess you could call it brand activation, but that makes it sound a lot more serious than it was. But like my husband, Deepa's mom, like a number of people were just like walking in there crying, being like, this is so amazing seeing where it was five years ago at that launch party versus today is just like huge scale. At the same time, we had wild postings up around New York, which are like the posters that are that are talking about us and our and our and Dagging Summer Games and all of that. In October of, of that year of 2018, we were on the subway, had a huge subway advertisement and all of that. And it's funny because people's responses were like, wow, you were on the subway. You've made it. It like, really feels that way, it's right? It's funny. Yeah. It's yeah. really funny. I'm like, we paid for that, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, but those moments where it's like people were like, I see a Dagny, I see four every day. Like, yes, oh my God, that's amazing. So it started with one. And now at this point, it's very easy for us to see it. I'd say like four plus a day, which is like insane. So did you guys like start out with product market fit or? Oh, yes. Yeah. We started, that was a focus from day one. Some companies, some consumer brands are definitely more marketing driven of like, hey, this one makes us cool. We look so beautiful. The photography is amazing. We were like cheap and dirty, like get it done. But the product needs to wow them. The product needs to be far better than anything they're going to see in any other store. Far better value, far better features quality, et cetera. What do you see Dagna Dover becoming, like, ultimately? Yeah, I mean, like, to your question about international and all of that, like, we definitely want to be an international global brand. Is that going to happen overnight? No. Do we want that to happen overnight? No. When you build a brand with integrity and you build something that's going to last, you don't try to do that. In fact, you turn away business. In fact, we work with about 2% of the retailers who reach out to us. We've had Bloomingdale's and Dillard's and all of them reach out and Anthropology, a a trillion brands reach out, but we are in about six different retailers, Apple, Nordstrom, ShopBop, Equinox, Mattier, those are some of them. And that's it. It's got to be curated. So our growth is very tempered. It's very controlled. It's very deliberate. And then, of course, international, you got to do it with the right partner. You got to mm-hmm. do it with the right relationships. You got to mm-hmm. do it with the right marketing budget. All of that with the mm-hmm. right regional knowledge. So, And that's actually very fascinating because I think as Asian Americans, a lot of times we are told to like, we see opportunities and we want to take them, right? Like if brands are reaching out to you, you want to say yes, 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 right? Oh, so yeah. somebody that we interviewed, like Michelle Fawn, mm-hmm. she was she was telling us that so she cool. was saying yes to too many things. Totally. She was just doing this and doing that. And it's doing very and distracting from what you're actually focused on. So we've had that, honestly, we've had that discipline basically from the very beginning of like, hey, well, it all started at the very beginning when someone, went, I think it was Business Insider, wanted to write about us in a roundup and we hadn't even launched and we didn't have a site. And it was like, oh my gosh, like this would be amazing. But this is not the right time. If they write about us now, they're not going to write about us in six months. We also don't want to be in a roundup. We'd want to be in a, a feature. Like, you got to think about the long game and be like, no, I have to say no to this because I'm looking at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is hopefully they'll come back to us in six months or a year and, and do something bigger and better when we can actually capitalize on it. Wow. That you know? is very, very important. So, like, that's, so like, that's yeah. like one small example of people are going to approach you all the time to do collaborations or this blogger wants you to pay them $5,000 for you know this thing. And you're like, oh, that's amazing. They want to carry a product no no <laughs> you got to be really focused about what your strategy is and who you are instead of being sidetracked and distracted by any shiny thing that comes your way that's mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so that actually is a great segue to the next question which is how do you balance it all right you're having a baby soon mm-hmm. you have a company to run mm-hmm. uh, you have another child mm-hmm. <laughs> at home like how do you prioritize and how do you find time for everything well, I'm I'm very fortunate that I was able to start the company, start working on it in 2011. Didn't have my first kid until the end of 2015, so I had a good number of years where I was able to dedicate to the business. But the truth is that when you're a parent, and I'm not, I don't want to speak on behalf of all parents, but for me, it's always been very important that I am totally present because how can you possibly be an effective leader slash you know parent if you're not leading by example, and so. You know, certainly there are people who maybe like their jobs more than like spending time with their children and all of that. And I, I honestly, I totally get that because <laughs> it's exhausting. But but to be a good parent in my eyes, I need to be present. And so that means I need to spend time doing the mundane things too, the things that are really boring, <laughs> but that are the things that you're going to wish that you, you know, could get back in 10 years, mm-hmm, 20 mm-hmm, years, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I had to slow down. I just had to be like, no, when I'm home, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm with him. We are coloring. We are doing something together. I'm teaching him. I'm reading to him. We're, we're laughing. And really just separate, create that boundary mm-hmm. of you can't mess this up. Mm-hmm. There are many things that you can sort of mess up in life. You can't mess up your child. 
you have to give them your complete attention mm-hmm. or else how are they going to feel ever worthy of attention from someone else mm. so so yeah so basically my family and being a good role model being a good leader which is a you know, mom but a good person so they become a productive citizen so that they become someone who's caring for other people someone who is confident someone who follows their passions mm-hmm. i think leading by example is the most important thing We always end the episode with our signature question. How do you intend to rock the boat, Melissa? I'm very much about being not sugarcoating anything. And like, I'm not one of those founders who has like the glossy Instagram feed where it's like, life is perfect. And like, look at me, I'm a founder. It's like, I talk about real parenting, parenting, parenting. I talk about like real postpartum issues and pregnancy issues. I complain all day about being pregnant. I I talk about like social issues, things that I really believe in because I think that that is what's important to share. If you have any sort of platform, if you have any sort of audience who might listen to you, do it to create more positivity, more change, more progress in any way that you feel is important in the world. It's not just about, my life is amazing, yours isn't. Like, that is not it. So we can always check out Melissa's indif- uh, <laughs> Instagram <laughs> well, feed. Just be or a like living Facebook example feed. of what you want, of what you believe in, what if you, you want to important. know what real parenthood looks like. <laughs> <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to see how tired she looks every day. Yeah, but it's <laughs> be a living example. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. Sure. I'm so, so glad that you were on the podcast, Melissa. Thanks for sharing your stories. This is fantastic. Thank you for having me. That was Melissa Mash, the founder of multi-million dollar digital native bag brand Dagny Dover and mom extraordinaire. My favorite thing about Melissa's story is her unwavering desire to build something bigger than herself. I love that she's creating a brand that women can relate to, as opposed to other brands like Coach and Michael Kors. She's paving a path and creating a world where women buy products created by women for women, and that is so important. Lastly, Melissa is one of the many women who've been on Rock the Boat who seem to have it all. She is a charismatic leader, an entrepreneur, and a mother. This gives me hope that as a woman, there are ways to balance and integrate life with our passions. Thanks for tuning in to Rock the Boat. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating if you're listening on iTunes, and definitely tell your friends about it. This episode was written and edited by me, Lucia Lu. You can follow us on Instagram at rocktheboatnyc and subscribe to our mailing list for inside news. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next time.